Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. I'm your host, Violet Luca. In the sixth grade, my teacher posed a question to the class. If you were stranded on a desert island, which items would you want in order to help you survive? The teacher's long list ranged from matches to knives to guns. While I can't remember how it broke down in my class, in the early days of the pandemic, a lot of Americans chose guns. In fact, many gun stores couldn't keep up with demand. The concept of permitless carry, which is a law in more than 20 states and could be extended to all 50 very soon, is poised to increase the number of openly or furtively armed Americans. In the February issue, Rachel Monroe reports on permitless carry, which is widely disapproved of by most gun owners, and describes the small groups of gun rights activists who are chasing an idealized vision of gun ownership supposedly granted by the Second Amendment, one that in truth has never existed. I spoke with Monroe about this new crop of gun enthusiasts who are driving the legislation, about the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict, and about how the stereotypical image of a gun owner is flawed. We were just talking off mic about this, but gun ownership and gun culture is a really difficult subject to discuss or write about because it's an incredibly polarizing issue. And I mean, we live in a world where increasingly everything's very, you know, one side or the other, but guns have, it's really gotten to this fever pitch. And that's, you know, that's part of what your article is about. So how did you prepare to write about this subject? And, you know, were you thinking about audience when you were, I mean, obviously, I think every writer thinks about audience to a certain extent, but how did you sort of prepare to address concerns from one side or the other navigating this really thorny issue? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I grew up in a, I grew up in the South, but in a family that like really had, was not a gun family at all and absorbed, I think, what a lot of people without a lot of exposure to guns do, just sort of like a, a knee-jerk antipathy, I would say, to them. And then recently I've started doing some reporting around guns and gun issues, which has like led to me firing a lot of guns and talking to a lot of gun people. And I did come to feel like I don't I don't know that like my political views on them have really changed all that much, but I do feel it did make me realize how this was a subject I had for much of my life approached with with very little nuance and very little curiosity and just sort of a sense like, well, I know I, I know what I think and nothing really is going to change that. And I, why would I want to know anything more about guns or people who have guns, gun owners, their reasons for gun ownership, what it's like to fire a gun, have a gun in the house? Like it just um, looking back at it, I was like, oh, I really did have a visceral distaste. And then it's interesting when you talk to people who are really immersed in the world of firearms and that's, they, they pick up on that distaste, you know, like on an individual level. And also I think from a cultural level. And so I've, I've kind of become obsessed with guns, not in a way that I like want to own one probably, but like I flipped all the way around and from being really incurious, I've become super curious and I kind of understand how people feel rankled when people like me have these strong opinions about, you know, about guns with very little exposure or knowledge. And so in some ways, when I was writing this piece, I was thinking a lot about a couple friends that I have here. I've lived in 
rural Texas for the past 10 years now. And so my being here, my exposure to guns has, has really changed from when I lived in Baltimore before this. And I, I have a lot of friends who who have guns and who really love guns as as tools, as objects of self-defense, as totems, sometimes it feels like. And so in some ways I was thinking about them. I wanted to write something that they I don't know if they're going to agree with everything that I have to say, but I was I was thinking about them. I I think for a long time I had in my head some some sort of stereotypical vague gun owner in my head who maybe I didn't yeah, again, a person I didn't have much curiosity of, but when I think about, you know, people that I actually know in my life um and respect and who respect me, I I don't know. I wanted to write to think about it in that kind of like respectful way, even if I came to ended up in the same place that I was before, at least approaching it with, yeah, more curiosity and openness and respect. Yeah. No, it's funny. I mean, because I grew up in Iowa and I've, I had a similar relationship to guns where it's like my family did not own guns. We were not, but I knew people who they had that relationship to guns, you know, be it like hunting or just sort of like going to a range. And yet, like you, when I think about a gun owner, I don't think about like my friend Dina, who I went to a range with for the first time and shot a gun. And he's like this like very fun, fashionable woman who's, you know, she believes in gun ownership. I think of sort of like that stereotype. And it's a very difficult thing to get around because there's certainly some truth to that stereotype, but it's it's more complicated than that. And you do want to be respectful to people who there's more nuance or they don't necessarily fit into that type, which might lead us to Michael Cargill. When did you first meet Michael? And could you talk a little bit about his background? I met Michael in the summer of 2021. And gosh, as soon as I met him, I was so delighted. I remember I was in in Austin with some friends and I remember coming back home to the place we were all renting and being like, I found the most amazing man. (laughs) He's this like short, funny, aggressive, gay, black man who owns a gun store and and has a radio show and has a, has a radio show. Come and talk it, which is I come I, and talk it. It's really I mean, fun. <laughs> yeah, he's like he's an incredibly fun person and also I think he would co-sign this like can be quite annoying. Like I think he, you know, he knows what he's doing. He's strategically annoying maybe. <laughs> but I just, you know, I walked into that into that gun store and in some ways it had like the flavor of a lot of other firearms sales places that I've been to, you know, there's like these like, you know, kind of aggressive bumper stickers on the wall and handguns kind of under the counter and then rifles on the wall. But like everybody who was working there, I think it was all men, but they're all like black or Latino men. And Michael just has this sort of like very kind of giddy attitude around him. And he's not, you know, I think when we were talking about that, that stereotypical gun owner that maybe some people have in their heads, like, you don't usually think of it as being a gay black man, you know, Mm -hmm. living in Texas. And he was, he was just super open with me, which I really appreciated. We like, we would go out, there's a bar across the parking lot from, from his store. And he, he's just like, he's enough of a regular that he just has to nod and they, they bring him a Long Island iced tea. And so we would just like, sit there and talk and argue. And yeah, it was a really fascinating person. Yeah. And Michael, 
she said, owns a gun store, has this radio show, is just kind of this larger-than-life personality who also maybe wants to kind of needle for his own purposes. But he was concerned about the results of the new permitless carry law in Texas. And that's this is actually something that is different from a lot of other gun issues where the vast majority of gun owners don't like this law either. But he stages this stunt. Michael staged this stunt to sort of raise awareness about how it will allow guns in many of Texas's bars, like during the pandemic. And he says the law will lead to more shooting and that if it, you know, if permitless carry was put on the ballot, it would not pass. But then in some ways, he also kind of supports permitless carry. So how do you square these positions? Yeah, that was something that I asked him a lot. Um, how do you square these positions? And I think it's the big question that uh, probably like the, the the gun lobby and and gun supporters in general are should be asking themselves. I, I don't know if they are as much as they should be. But because, yeah, like you said, we've just been in this position for the past few decades where the gun lobby has kind of flogged this idea over and over again, you know, they're, they're coming to take your guns away from you at any moment. It's It's been at this like, you know, alleged point of crisis for, for decades. And therefore we need to do anything we can to expand gun rights and this sort of maximalist approach. And they, and they often, you know, particularly in states that are run by Republicans like Texas, they've been overwhelmingly successful. And yet they keep sort of fighting these battles. And, and we've come to this point with permitless carry, which is this relatively new wave of laws that like it sounds like they eliminate the requirement to have a permit or any training or licensing to carry a gun in public. In so many polls over and over again, if you ask people if they want this, they say no. If you ask Republicans if they want this, they overwhelmingly say no. If you ask gun owners if they want this, they also say no. I mean, there was a poll, I think from 2015 in Texas, that even among people who identified as very conservative, this was not their preferred way to have gun ownership function in the state. So it's just, you know, over and over again. And, and this is something that you know, when you talk to gun owners, again, like talking, speaking of like the nuance and complexity that that is there, like when you actually speak to people, people want gun owners to be respectful of the great responsibility that they carry. They want, you know, they think everybody should have training and yet permitless carry is sort of this, these waves of laws that are gaining traction and being pushed by the gun lobby. And so people, you, you find people like Michael Cargill in this like, funny, twisty position of being like, no, 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 I, I support that. And then just like talking you through all the ways that it's terrible, you know? And one of the things that he said, which I think is right, was, yeah, if you put this to a vote, even in Texas, you know, a very gun-friendly state, I wouldn't pass on a ballot, but it passes in the state legislature because so many of our legislators are afraid of doing anything that would be seen as like, you know, not supporting Second Amendment rights. But even law enforcement, I mean, that's the other thing that's really interesting, like law enforcement testified against this bill. And that's what's so interesting to me about permitless carry is it, it, I think it's easy to think of Second Amendment advocates, you know, gun supporters as, as a monolith. But once you start peeking at these actual issues, these fissures and these cracks appear. Yeah. And I, I, I think the relationship between gun owners who are pushing for permitless carry and their relationship to the police is also more complicated than it's portrayed in the, I don't want to say in the media, but 
the the dominant idea of how gun owners feel about police is not necessarily true. I mean, and I think one of the recurrent themes of this piece is how gun activists have just continuously shifted the goalposts over the years. And they've also changed their tactics quite a bit. And you write about this standoff and this Navarez is a former state senator who's a gun act, you know, pro-gun, actually had a gun in his office. Uh, These people just sort of stormed in and were demanding permitless carry. And of course, that that weird standoff and some a lot of what was said during that standoff being, you know, sort of like, well, this is the people's house. You can see that idea, that, that sort of change everywhere. And I think obviously January 6th was an example of this, but that desire to sort of keep moving things forward and how far people want to go is really has changed quite a bit over the past, you know, 15 years. And I guess where where does that come from? Where does that impetus to keep pushing for this more perfect idea of what gun ownership can be? Yeah, I mean, it's and it's scary to think about that incident that you mentioned that I write about in the piece, because that's like, that's 2015. And at the time, everybody was like, Oh, my gosh, this is this is too far, you can't, you know, barge in there and like threaten and intimidate a lawmaker, you know, in the Capitol, like, no, 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 don't do that. And then a handful of years later, you know, those people are getting what they asked for. And it was hard not to think about that, you know, while everybody talks about January 6th, you know, these things that first arrive as like these fringe positions and then get absorbed into the mainstream. I mean, it was really instructive for me in some ways to think about how in Texas, this idea of public gun carry is so recent. You know, it's like within my lifetime, it's really within like, I think 95 is when the state first has concealed carry. So before 1995, like you couldn't carry a gun in public unless you were a cop, you know, it just like wasn't at all the norm for most of the state's history. I mean, we have this idea of Texas as this like gun toting place in it. And it really, it really wasn't for most of the state's history. And then in in 2015, you get open carry. And then last year, 2021, you get permitless concealed or open carry. And so that just kind of gives you a sense of like how swift and how thorough a transformation it has been. And I think people sort of like to act as though the reason permitless carry supporters like to call it constitutional carry and their their line is often, you know, we we carry under the constitution, you know, the second amendment, that's the only permit that I need. And they like to talk about it as if it's like a, a restoration of an ancient right or something. But really, I think that's a way of kind of dodging the fact that what they're doing is is quite new and radical and different. And, you know, who's who's pushing that? I mean, I think Certainly, our current gun policies in the country are shaped by the NRA and the NRA's concerted effort to push for more public gun carry starting in the 70s. And and that's where you get a lot of these um, states that, you know, were previously essentially, you know, no civilian was allowed to carry publicly. And then you start having that creep until now, like in almost every state, it's pretty easy to get a concealed carry permit. But then you have these new gun groups. And that was one of the things that was really fascinating to me was to see how the NRA has been kind of outflanked on the right. And uh, the NRA, you know, supports permitless carry, but the NRA in some ways is at this point kind of like an established lobby, right? And then what you have in, in these more recent years and who's kind of driving some of these these 
outrageous protests that you were talking about and that I write about are these groups that kind of start out as grassroots groups, you know, now they have a ton of money and political power behind them, but they get called, you know, kind of no compromise groups, like groups that see the NRA as too soft and that take this hardline stance that, you know, I mean, in some cases, it's really the argument is like, there should be no infringement on guns. Like, yes, you know, a two-year-old should have a gun, you know, yes, convicted felons should have guns, you know, that's, that's sort of the extreme position. But some of these groups like that, that is really where they end up that any, any infringement is a huge imposition. And you just started to see, um, particularly in states like Texas that are so dominated by one party, where the primaries are like the election that everybody's really worried about, these fringe groups could really like mobilize voters, um, even if it was like a, a relatively small proportion of voters that wanted this, like these extreme gun laws, and just like push everybody farther and farther to these extreme positions, because the politicians were afraid of, of losing their primaries. And then all of a sudden you have that's how you get these laws that, you know, when you actually ask voters, do you want this? They say no, but the the lawmakers are sort of, you know, end up being in some ways like held hostage to these these extreme niche voters. Yeah. And I mean, you quote Adam Winkler, who's a professor of law, and he says that, you know, this this pushing is kind of maybe just part of the cycle of democratic politics. But it is funny to think of the NRA as I would argue probably these smaller groups do. The thing of the NRA is sort of business as usual, that they're just part of the Washington machine at this point and that we need to go further and that there's a like a pure form of gun ownership to be achieved. When in reality, you know, you describe what it's like to have permitless carry. It's this incredibly Byzantine set of rules that are rules because this is a law and not this ideal of, you know, it's not a concept of gun ownership. It's like, yeah, you don't want to have somebody permitless carry near school. You don't want someone to permitless carry near a house of worship. For some reason, it's okay to shoot somebody for graffiti if it's after dark. Like all these weird, this ideal, and then the crashing reality of what it is to make that a law. And there are very good reasons why, you know, the law is, is kind of confusing. Yeah, totally. I mean, it was, and I, I learned so much. I, I took the um, class to get the, my concealed carry permit, which, you know, in Texas, like I don't need anymore. Like I could just, you know, I could walk around with a gun. You could walk around with a gun that, you know, pretty much anybody could walk around with a gun. But I was like, well, I'll, I'll, I'll take the class just to kind of see, see what it takes. And uh, I took the class with Michael Cargill and he's, you know, he, <laughs> I mean, he, he makes the point that as a black man, he, he feels like he needs to know the law better than any law enforcement officer, because like, that's sort of, that's one of his, one of his defenses, one of his weapons in a way is to be very well versed in his rights. And so he could just like rattle off these laws. And it, and it was really fascinating to sit in that room because like you say, there is this very simplistic fantasy of gun ownership that I think gets trotted out at, you know, political rallies and in second amendment propaganda, which is just this idea of the gun owner as this often like implicitly white law abiding kind of justice bringing person who's going to the fantasy is often, you know, stop a mass shooter or like defend their 
wife from, you know, some sort of like sexual crime or something. And I think in some ways that's like a very appealing fantasy for people, um, particularly when you kind of tie it back to, you know, historical figures and the, and the founding of the nation and things can get very, it can feel very, you know, grand and noble. But when you actually look at the way that actually having so many people with guns increasingly in public in the United States and like what that actually looks like, it's it's so much it's so much messier and more confusing. And so the concealed carry class, which, you know, now is no longer even a requirement in Texas, but used to be, I think, like 15 hours. Now it's shortened to like six. So we went really quickly over, you know, kind of zipped through, like, what are the laws? What are what are the use of force laws? Like, okay, I have a gun. Like, when, when am I legally justified in shooting somebody? And yeah, you realize really quickly, like, how how absurd some of these laws are. Like, it really, it is like... You can you can shoot somebody to prevent or stop uh, criminal mischief, not during the day, but at night. And criminal mischief is like graffiti or like toilet papering somebody's house. Like that is that is like I read it. I read it in the law book. And, you know, that is like Texas law. If you see somebody doing graffiti at night in Texas, you as, as I understand it from from like looking at that legal code and talking about it in the class, you, you can shoot that person. That's that's legally justified. And then one of the other things that was really interesting in that class that he had us do is we just like watched a bunch of videos, like videos on YouTube that people have taken on their phones of like various confrontations. It was actually this was in some ways was like the most instructive part like road rage incidents. There's one, like these two neighbors just arguing over a mattress. This is actually like a really horrifying and shocking video to watch. It's just these two guys screaming at each other, you know, like you shouldn't have dumped that mattress on my property. Actually, it's my property. You know, it's like in the alleyway or something. They're just yelling at each other. One of them has a gun. The other guy's like, don't wave that gun at me. And they just start like yelling at each other. And this, this like argument over like who put the mattress in the alley ends with this guy shooting this other guy and it's all filmed. And then, and it's just, there's something about it that was so, it really like had none of that like heroic charisma of that, you know, the fantasy of, of the gun owner, the public gun. It really was like just tawdry and ugly and sad and tragic and embarrassing. And I was like, Oh, this is in some ways, this is like a really good thing to show people, you know, like this is, when you bring firearms into these arguments that people have always had and have had, you know, just the escalation that could be there. Right. No. And like you said, people aren't going to necessarily watch those videos now because of permitless carry. They're just going to be out there with their guns. And I mean, again, and it's like, you know, just thinking, well, what's more likely? Are you going to need to be a good guy with a gun or are you going to get in an argument with somebody about something stupid, which happens more frequently? Right, exactly. And the answer is obvious. It's hard not to think about, you know, thinking about thinking through this issue of, you know, the perfect form of gun ownership. It's hard not to think of other sort of like things from the Constitution that are kind of fetishized, like free speech. And this this really... You know, the American system was sort of designed to be amended constantly. And instead, there's been this real looking back and kind of trying to preserve the rights that and sort of redefine these rights. And again, these were concepts, 
these are concepts and it's hard to, you know, make a concept work in a society when there, again, there's so many different, there are exceptions. There are things that, you know, this, maybe it's not a good idea because who could have thought of this stuff? Right. And it's such a fantasy about the past too, to imagine, yes, you know, yes. and, and it's, you know, I've read some books about it as I'm not like a legal scholar of, you know, how firearm possession in the United States and the history of it. But, you know, again, it was like not when people talk about, you know, reverting to some idealized past or some, you know, time when the, some sort of pure constitutional idea of gun ownership, like that's, they're making that up. That's like a, that's a fantasy just as much as, as anything else is. Maybe that would be a good segue to talk about the Supreme Court. Because the Supreme Court is now considering the constitutionality of the May issue permitting for guns outside of the home based on a challenge to a New York law limiting concealed carry licenses to approved cases. Could you talk more about the significance of that case for the question of permitless carry and what that law is and how is the court to likely rule and when will they rule? Sure. So this this is case is like a little bit maybe adjacent to permitless carry, but it's it's within this realm of the movement of guns into the public sphere, which is, you know, this this past few decades, we've seen that happen overwhelmingly. And there have been a handful of states that are that are holdouts, mostly in the Northeast, you know, like New York, Connecticut, Massachusetts, Maryland, California, Illinois, I think. And these are states that when the NRA was had, had this big push to uh, flip states. Most states at that, you know, maybe 30, 40 years ago had the way that they issued concealed carry permits um, said, you know, who could carry a gun in public was they had a may issue doctrine. So the state could say like, yes or no. And in many cases um, you could apply. And unless you had like an overwhelming reason, like, you know, say you were a retired police officer or say you were a judge, a lot of those states would, would, essentially like not give anybody a permit to carry publicly. And so while you have states like, you know, Texas opening this right up and, and having, you know, over a million people get concealed carry permits in places like New York, California, it's, it's like relatively unheard of. And so you have like much lower rates of um, gun carry in those places because these other states switched to a uh, shall issue policy, which meant like anybody who applied and met minimal criteria, like you will get a gun. The default is yes, instead of the default being no. And this Supreme Court case is essentially like saying, you know, are these may issue this kind of default no policy? Is that constitutional? And everybody that I spoke to said, oh yeah, they're going to get rid of that. Like that's, you know, we're, we're going to have no more may issue states, which then means likely that these uh, states which have like really had a, a tight control over who can carry guns in public, they're going to, you know, potentially have a flood of people applying for concealed carry licenses and potentially carrying in public. And that's just going to be, it's going to be really transformative, I think. And, and maybe the culture, you know, maybe it'll take a while for the culture to, to catch up. Maybe there's not so much a, a culture of public carry in, um, you know, Los Angeles or Boston. I don't know. And certainly people have been carrying illegally in those places. But just as a person who moved from a place, you know, from Baltimore, Maryland, the place where like with very restrictive gun laws to Texas, you know, places very open gun laws. I don't know. It's like a real difference. I remember the first time I like saw somebody carrying in the grocery store and I was like, what? And then you get used to it really quickly. But it's 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 an enormous change. 
and then that it's a, it's a good chance that like you know will will permitless carry bills you know at some point um, come up to the Supreme Court you know will will the court rule on whether any kind of permitting system is unconstitutional that's that's probably much farther down the road but I think that this is just this these various ways that this trend of public guns moving into the public sphere we're just seeing that happen on all these different fronts yeah. I was actually in Austin probably like 2014 for South by Southwest. And I was in, I was using Wi-Fi at a coffee shop and these people, you know, open carry people walked down, this huge procession of them walked down South 6th Street. And Austin, you know, classic keep Austin weird. So there were some keep Austin weird ties. And then there are just sort of like maybe more stereotypical gun owner types. And again, you could do that you know you could open carry but they wanted to make a point and they wanted to be visible and this one woman lifted up her shirt and pressed her breasts onto the glass of the coffee shop and it was just like this exhibitionism you know again talking about like the shift in gun culture of the past you know 20 years whatever it's like this exhibitionism and like we want to tell all these people who are visiting from out of state for this dumb festival that kind of sucks <laughs> that you know this is this is how things are and you know toward the end of your piece you you talk about imagining what it will be like to own a gun and like how your thought process might work as a gun owner or just knowing that more people are going to be carrying and you write, I would start to scan for signs that other people were carrying, noting how they carried themselves, looking for a hitch in their step or whether they subtly favored one side. Perhaps I would begin to imagine guns where there weren't any. So I wanted to follow up on this and just sort of like, you know, sort of talk through that because I think it is something that if, again, if the Supreme Court rules and takes all this sort of stuff away, we're all going to be dealing with this question to a certain extent. Yeah, I think, and this is something that that I've been trying to articulate to to my friends who have guns is that I, uh, this strong sense that I have that there's something that we lose by living in a world that's sort of constantly haunted by the potential of gun violence and the potential of and the and the presence of guns in public space and less trained people too. Yeah, I mean, I would say you know, like that's that's part of it. But personally, I think the, you, you know, even the previous steps are a little bit alarming to me. And it's just, it's this sense of pervasive fear, which I think escalates any situation. And I was thinking about it, you know, when I was watching the Kyle Rittenhouse trial, you know, this sense that like he, he brought a gun into a situation and then because of the presence of that gun felt that he was in fear for his life. And so then it justified him to use the gun. And it, it, we, we end up in sort of in this circular place where the presence of guns makes me feel afraid, which makes me need to have a gun, which kind of justifies my use of a gun because, you know, I, I'm afraid that everybody is armed. And this is something that we like certainly see, I think, with police officers and their perception, um, you know, particularly during like car stops that people who aren't armed, may be armed, and, and how quickly that, like, those situations can turn deadly when there's just this constant fear and anxiety and this feeling of being kind of potentially under threat at any moment. 
and I, I guess, and I'm seeing a lot of people or I'm hearing from a lot of people, particularly like in, in 2020 and 2021, friends of mine just talking about considering buying a gun for the first time. The pandemic rush to buy a gun. Yeah, I mean, there was like this enormous pandemic rush, you know, which has like many different factors feeding into it. But I don't know, I get really depressed when I think about it because it feels like this, this almost like this acquiescence. And I understand the, um, I understand the impetus, which is just sort of like, look, if the people who I feel want to harm me, if they're all armed, then like, yeah, I'm going to be armed too. But the way that that sort of turns society into this kind of arms race and we all are perceiving each other as as kind of enemies and potential threats it's just so corrosive to a sense of shared public something sentiment i don't know trust I, I, society I know. society yeah just like yeah. Li- yeah we like living in a society right yeah. and yeah so i don't know it gets it, i get sad when i think about it yeah and i mean you know, the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict, which was still very fresh when this story went to press, comes up a few times in the piece. And, you know, you talk about it as how expanded gun laws can lead to situations that like you just described. I'd be interested to hear if you had any new reflections on the verdict in the intervening two months, or is it too early about how this case has altered the field of what's imaginable for Americans when it comes to gun rights and vigilantism? Yeah, I don't I don't know if if my thoughts have been are, are new in any way at all, but it's yeah, it really is. I mean, and and we saw people protesting, you know, armed Black Lives Matter protesters and we saw armed people, you know, counter protesters and again just sort of thinking about how the presence of guns like then becomes a justification for the presence of of more guns and um becomes a justification for for fear and and also this increasing sense also of it's not quite paramilitary. It's almost like para law enforcement. Uh, I think that's kind of what Carl Rittenhouse saw himself as this idea of it's often a man with a gun self deputizing to to kind of keep the peace and the gun becomes almost like the instrument of his authority or something. Well, and also that he was not a man. He was 17. Right. That's a very good point. He was a boy, boy, yeah. a boy with a gun. Yeah. And again, just sort of like this fantasy of like the gun, almost like conferring virtue in a way when it really just, you know, makes these situations often like so messy and so dangerous. And, you know, and it should be said, like, I think it's really important to include in like any discussions of guns and gun violence that like the vast majority of gun deaths in the United States are suicides, 60 percent. And so these people, you know, people who are buying a gun to, you know, with this idea that like, I, I've got to defend myself, or I've got to defend my my family, my home. I mean, the biggest thing that you're going to have to defend yourself against is like your yourself and your own demons, right? You know, like, that's, I, I think that's something that really, I don't know, it's just important to talk about. And women are, are much more likely to be, if there's a gun in the house, they're, they're much more likely to be killed by their own partners. And that's, you know, a risk for them. So again, you know, like the threat, the the fantasy is like the the threat, you know, protecting your your family from a threat that comes from without. But so often the, the threat is like the danger is inside the house, right? Yeah. And I mean, you know, we were referring to sort of like the pandemic sort of boom in gun sales. And it's like, well, if you're buying a gun because you feel like society's falling apart, that 
suicide risk, that's clearly going to rise too. If you feel like, well, nothing's ever going to change. Nothing is working. I'm afraid. And it's just the potential implications for that wave of gun ownership. We haven't really felt it yet, but it's, it's definitely, it's, it's, it's going to change a lot of people's lives. Yeah. And I mean, I do think it's important. And this is something that so often, like there's a, there's a fantasy on the other side too. There's a fantasy on the the kind of gun control, anti-gun, whatever you want to call the, the, the other side Clean of this. Heart lib. Yes. Yeah. That, <laughs> you know, that like gun owners are crazy that once we pass these laws, like permitless carry, it's just going to be bloodbaths in the streets. And we don't actually like we don't see that the vast majority of gun owners like are law abiding. Right. And they're like never going to shoot anybody. But sometimes I think by like by again, by sort of having when we're when we're talking in these fantastic terms, we never talk about what actually happens. And and I think the real the dangers are much more small scale and individualistic. And, and we haven't really seen, you know, that, I mean, God, it's so t- difficult to talk about uh, gun statistics because there's just so many variables at play and you can, you know, depending on how you parse them, you can kind of make them come out one way or another. But I, I, in all the meta-analysis that I've read, it seems, you know, there isn't, as far as we know, like a clear statistical link between these more permissive gun laws and either, you know, more violence because there's more guns in public or um, a reduction in violence because, you know, all these gun owners are stopping crime. You know, the clearest link is like the, the link with with increased suicide and firearm availability. So, yeah, but I but I do think like even if even if we can't point to, you know, look, the murder rate rose, look, the domestic homicide rate rose. I still do think that there's something gets lost when we kind of seed seed our public space over to prevalent guns. Right. I mean, I think also in general, it's correlation doesn't equal causation. There's so many different things kind of going into these. Like, as we've discussed, there's a lot of things going on with gun ownership that, again, it might sound ghastly to somebody outside of the United States, but this is the reality that we're in. and. It is prone to fantasies from pro and anti-gun people. And it's more complicated than anyone would like to admit at the present moment. But I wanted to sort of ask, because I read your investigative report for Wired about your experience Mm. of undergoing intensive tactical firearms training. And so could you give us, you know, you described some of your concealed carry training. Could you talk about like what tactical firearms training was like? Oh my gosh, it was wild. I took two courses. I took one course at Gunsight, which is like a longstanding sort of pioneered this this idea of teaching tactical firearms, which is kind of like military style firearm combat. Basically the thinking that the, the reason you're going to use your gun is like to fight against somebody else. Gunsight sort of pioneered this teaching this to civilians, you know, it went from the military to the police and now more and more places are, are teaching this to just regular old gun, gun owners. And so, you know, that was just like shooting thousands and thousands of rounds, spinning around doing, you know, like they teach you all these tricks to, to do it really fast. And then it culminates with you like going in, in this house. They tell you this whole story about like this Timmy who 
They stress is a blonde-haired, blue-eyed little boy being uh, held captive by a motorcycle gang, and you've got to like break into the house with the mo- and like shoot the motorcycle gang. But like, so there are these targets, but you have to be careful also not to shoot Timmy. And so you're just kind of stalking through this house with your gun, you know, using the techniques to like pivot around the corners and take down the, the motorcycle guys. So that was Gunsight, and then I did another training with a AR-15 sort of a little bit more of a, a less established outfit based out here in Texas called Green Eye Tactical. And that was, that was like, honestly, I think I write in the piece about how I was, how it made me cry, uh, which, you know, maybe not like the most tough guy thing to admit, but we were like running through the woods again, you know, trying to save a kidnapped boy. There's it's always the scenario ducking behind trees, firing our AR-15s. And I was, I was just like, I am not ready for this. I am not skilled enough. The other other guys in the class had done like a million of these classes and were super proficient. And I was like, I've basically fired an AR-15, you know, like twice before in my life. I should not be running through the woods. This is too crazy. Yeah. I mean, did you feel like that experience sort of shaped your hesitance or your sort of thoughts about what might happen about the psychological effects of gun ownership? I mean, in some ways it, it made me in a funny way, people don't like it when I say this, but it, it like, I was like, I, you know, honestly, it gave me some respect for the AR-15. I remember the first time my friend who kind of helped me out and then taught me about that gun, which lived in my head as such a, like a symbol of evil, honestly. It's like, they're such, they're, they're, they're military looking guns. And so I remember the first time walking to his house, seeing it on the table, being like afraid to touch it. And through talking to him and through this course, I, I was like, oh, yeah, honestly, like my, my friend who has the AR-15, he also has a Corvette, right? He like he loves beautiful machines and he loves this as a beautiful machine. And I think I had in my head for so long the idea, like, why would anybody have this except if they wanted to, like, kill people for it? This is a machine right. for killing people. And I mean, like, it's also true that I think, you know, of the tens of thousands of gun deaths in the United States, I believe it's like 300 of them are with AR-15s. Like this is not the gun that's actually killing people. It has this this outsized symbolic value, but it's actually not like, it's much less of a deadly weapon, I think, than its reputation gives us. So in some ways, like in some ways I realized I had to sort of confront my own prejudices and the ways that they were and were not like based in statistics and based in reality and we're more kind of these sort of knee-jerk cultural associations and so in some ways yeah I think it's like really important to like be able to criticize this stuff from like a position of intimacy if that makes sense um, rather than like from a place of distance but I also there was something about in both of those courses being told over and over again to be afraid and to defend myself against fear and to perceive, perceive the world as like full of potential threat I don't know. It was just like a real lesson in that in that mindset. And I I decided that was like not a mindset that I wanted to have. Right. Well, thank you so much. This was really interesting. Yeah, it was a pleasure to talk to you. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. 
Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save. 